1: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director,
2: writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Movies are magic. They tell impossible tales and make the impossible possible. Special effects have matured to such a degree that you can render anything on the screen and make it believable, no matter how wild your imagination. One of the earliest practitioners of film tricks was the French illusionist, Georges Méliès, who upon seeing a demonstration of the Lumière brothers' new cinematograph, immediately understood the possibilities of bringing his magic to the screen. His films were ingenious, though he rarely moved his camera from a stage-wide proscenium, where his wonders were played out in front of a stationary, imagined audience. He made characters disappear, shrink, and be shot in a rocket into the eye of the man in the moon in his most famous movie, A Trip to the Moon in 1902. Stop motion was a huge new development, especially in the hands of Master Willis O'Brien, whose The Lost World gave 1925 audiences the opportunity to see living and breathing dinosaurs cavorting on the big screen. Stop motion matured even further under the hand of O'Brien's protege, Ray Harryhausen. Screen magic has continued to evolve in a maze over the years with makeup effects, physical effects, and the now ubiquitous illusions of CGI. But it started on stage with live wonders of prestidigitation, which did not have the advantage of editing and camera and post production. No, stage magic is all done live in front of an audience with no cuts, just the talent of the performers on the stage. There's nothing like watching a live magic show in the hands of masters of magic. And our guest is one of the world's leading and original practitioners of the art of prestidigitation. Teller, whose name usually follows an ampersand, is an actor, a writer, a painter, and a magician par excellence. And we'll get to know a little more about the silent half of the team of Penn and Teller and his own wondrous and personal story. Let's talk about my favorite horror streaming service, Shudder. Shudder is a streaming service with the best selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural movies, series, and originals. From Hollywood favorites and cult classics to original series and critically acclaimed new genre films you won't find anywhere else. Streaming uncut and commercial-free right to your favorite devices. But first, new this month are genre-bending, mind-melting exclusives like The Trippy Fried Berry, which blew my mind when I saw it at festivals overseas last year, retro horror comedy PG Psycho Gorman, and The Reckoning, the latest from modern horror master Neil Marshall, director of The Descent, Dog Soldiers, and episodes of Game of Thrones. Shudder also recently announced its Summer of Chills lineup, featuring a new exclusive movie premiere every single week, including horror master George A. Romero's lost film The Amusement Park, now found and restored in 4K after being unseen for nearly 40 years. Slasher comedy Vicious Fun, about a horror movie critic who stumbles into a support group for serial killers, featuring Anchorman's David Koechner and anything for Jackson star Julian Richings, who also co-starred in Bag of Bones, which we made up in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Notable titles include Creepshow Season 2 and, yes, Season 3 has been confirmed for coming later this year. The original 1973 Wicker Man, Frankenhooker, Sator, and Caveat. There are a lot of originals you can only find on Shudder. You can stream all these great thrillers, horror, and suspense movies for $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. Shudder has the largest, fastest growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment that it's called The Netflix for Horror. There are new supernatural terrors, edge-of-your-seat thrillers, and shocking horrors added every week. And you'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, Android devices, and the tin hat you wear on your head. So Shudder is personal for me since they partnered with us on the production of Nightmare Cinema, which you can only see exclusively on Shudder. So try Shudder free for 30 days. Go to Shudder.com and use the promo code POSTMORTEMDREAD. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and POSTMORTEMDREAD. It's that time of year again. Yes, Severn Films is holding their mid-year sale from June 25th through the 29th at www.severin-films.com. Andy Warhol presents Paul Morrissey's Blood for Dracula, starring Udo Kier. Authorized release for the first time in a UHD Blu-ray CD digipack an all-new 4K scan from the original camera negative plus hours of exclusive new special features with the cast and crew. Other exclusive new Blu-ray releases include Guy Magar's Retribution in a three-disc set with slipcase, Ruggiero Deodato's Raiders of Atlantis, Lucio Fulci's Warriors of 2072, Joe D'Amato's Endgame, two never-before-released Jess Franco titles, and Mark Savage's The Masturbating Gunman. Now there's a title. Plus, 50% off most Severin and InterVision catalog titles and special discounts on merch and clearance items. The Severin Mid-Year Sale, running June 25th through the 29th, only at www.severin-films.com. So, Teller, welcome to the slab here on Postmortem. <laughs> it is such a pleasure to see you and to talk about this. You, you've lived in a world of wonder from the very beginning, your parents were both artists, your father was a traveling uh, seeker, and you were an entertainer from a very early age. Where did that begin? What were the seeds of that for you?
1: Oh, the seeds of that were uh, sickness, of course. (laughs) (laughs) When when I was about five, I went out to make snow angels, lay down in the snow, got very soaked with very cold snow, came back in, that turned into a little cold. That little cold turned into toxic myocarditis, which is sort of next door to rheumatic fever. I came very close to dying, got a a, a transfusion in the hospital and managed to survive. But I had to recuperate from that. And then that, I was home for a long time alone. And we had just bought this strange new appliance called of television, the screen about this big, And there was a, a kid show in there called Howdy Doody.
2: Oh, yeah. I used to watch Howdy Doody.
1: Did you watch Howdy Doody? Oh, well, yeah. as you recall, Howdy Doody had a clown, and the clown didn't speak, and the clown did magic tricks. This is only some years later I realized that Clarabelle never spoke oh, and yeah. that Clarabelle did magic tricks. All I really remembered for many years was that they offered a Howdy Doody magic set for 50 cents and three Mars bars wrappers. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I sent away for it. It came. Now, I'm five. Uh, I can barely read, so my parents help me read the, the, the directions. We assemble these little pieces. Here's the little box that, that came with that set. It has two miniature Mars bars in it. Oh my God! Now, if I put that box together with, it, with its other half and shake them up like this, magically, suddenly, one of the bars bars vanishes because it's been eaten by, by strange creatures this is one of the props that was in that magic set uh it's not this is not the original magic set that i had but i had a wonderful experience on my 60th birthday my best friend gave me this shirt box and i opened it up and in the shirt box was an intact howdy doody magic set something that i hadn't seen for 55 years
2: oh my god
1: I, i naturally burst into tears and couldn't stop crying because there were images there that I had not seen since I was a tiny kid. And those images were so important to me as a kid because you know, that, that magic set was the first time that it ever crossed my mind that things could be other than the way they looked, that, that something could look one way and actually be another. And that's a, that's a fascinating thing that I have not lost the fascination for ever since.
2: Well, you so what, lived in a sense of wonder uh, your whole life, but it it started more with theater, or was magic a part of your very first theatrical performance as well? Um, magic
1: preceded everything. Magic, magic was the magic was the first step. And keep in mind, this is not about wonder. Uh, wonder is a very overused word. This is mm-hmm. this is about this is about um, doubleness. It's about things looking one way and being another. It's about deception. It's why Penn & Teller always call uh, things that we're doing tricks, because we want to remind you that you're not looking at a special effect. A special effect is something that you watch and you accept, right? You you roll with it. You say, oh, that's part of the movie or that's part of the the show. A trick is something that you watch and sort of simultaneously love and resist. And that's a very important distinction between magic and special effects.
2: Well, when people go to your show, they are doubting Thomases. Uh, they want to be the ones who figure out how you do it. But having seen your show several times from the beginnings uh, off of Hollywood Boulevard and the like with Mofo and the great and all, um, you can't do it. <laughs> you guys are really impossible to bust.
1: Well, that's, I mean, what what you always what I always want out of, out, of, out of a work of art is I want impenetrable amazement. Right? I, I, I want amazement that I try my best to penetrate and fail. And when I fail, I'm full of joy. Uh, so that's, that's kind of, you know I mean? And I feel that way about all sorts of art. I feel that way about, for example, it's one of the reasons I love Bach, because I, you, know, you can look, you can listen to a Bach piece again and again and again, and try to figure out how he's doing that. that you know, it's really, it's loaded with tricks, tricks after tricks after tricks. How he's doing that? How some little tune that seems like it doesn't couldn't be the motor of anything suddenly becomes a motor for an enormous, enormous, uh, you know, fugue. Uh, I I feel that same way about painting. If I can figure out how a painter painted it, I'm not interested. When when the painter when the painter has mystified me, when the painter has done something that looks to me impossible and yet somehow there, then I love painting. Uh, you know, when you when, what's the difference between a good actor and a bad actor? A a, a good actor is one that amazes you. There's, you know, there's no little scenes there. So, yeah. um, yeah, So I I, wonder is wonder is is a fraught word for me.
2: I see. Well, I will avoid its use from now on. (laughs) (laughs) But tell me about uh, your life growing up with these two very creative parents. You wrote a beautiful book. When I'm dead, this will all be yours about your father Joe Teller, and there's so much love and joy in the family so many artists come out of broken homes but in your case your relationship with your father was magical yeah, sorry to use that word but yeah, no but I, I,
1: it was I, I was very fortunate in my parentage i just was uh, because they were both they were both in, in they met in art school and they were bohemians you know what you'd call it in those days my father was a, was a vegan in the early days mm. um, uh, and you know, they, they lived in not quite garrets, but places close to garrets, you know, no reference to you. <laughs> um, and uh, so I was brought up in a house where the, the, the values really were self expression. You know, they really, really were self expression. Um, also, literature, because my grandfather on my father's side was a Russian immigrant who came to the US taught himself english and is, was i think the best read person i knew as a child uh, he would he would send he would he, he was he was an inventor he was a hoarder but not 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 the bad kind he would go and he would buy books buy books buy books read them all cover to cover he knew he knew uh, all the all the classic english authors really well and when he would finish with the books he would eventually fill his apartment he would then move out of the apartment, move into a new apartment and start boarding there. But sometimes when he would finish with, with a set of books, he would send them to us. So early on, I got a set of Shakespeare uh, that, that has affected me forever. Um, he also sent us crazy stuff like he sent us. Uh, at one time, he sent us a box that contained six cans of whole grain hominy and, <laughs> and, and, and a loaf of bread that had no that had no uh, preservatives in it. And since it was coming from California, and this was in the 1950s, the bread was completely covered with mold. But that's <laughs> <Of wasn't course. laughs> part of my, my family.
2: Well, you've been involved in so many arts, um, not just in prestidig- prestidigitation. Let me spit that one out. Um, but your painting as well is something that fascinates me. I find that creative people often are talented in many directions in fact maybe every direction they may try they have some talent in that so tell me about how you discovered painting and and what that feels for you
1: um i'm really not a painter painter i i have to say i i uh, being around my parents one form of one form of communication with them was was uh being in the studio so when I would go and visit my parents, basically I would go and say, uh, "Give me a painting lesson." So I would I, I would go up to my father's studio and I would paint something, and he would always tell me, you know, I mean, I, he would tell me, "You have to learn to draw first, and that's a lot of a lot of work." that you're not willing to go to, I know you. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I painted a couple of things and I, it's sort of like music for me. I've you know, written a couple of musical compositions. I painted a couple of things, but I'm not, I'm not good at it. I'm not a painter, I'm not a musician. I'm a little bit of a writer and I'm a little bit of an actor, uh, but mostly really what I am, I confess, is a magician with some ideas.
2: What's amazing to me about magic is through all of the decades of its practice to go and see a show with, uh, with really the best that it's still impossible to figure out. You're constantly creating new and more elaborate tricks, often with the same theme underlying them, but they still astound and amaze after, you know, 200 years of the practice of, of stage magic. It, it's quite remarkable to me to see like you and Penn or any of the other uh, really well-known and many not so well-known magicians.
1: Uh, it is it is a very old form that thrives live. You know, it, it, it is um, magic is, you you can go to a concert and then later you can hear a recording of that concert and get some sense of what that concert must have been like. There is a sense in which you can see a recording of a magic show and get some of that sense, but it's not the same. I mean, you you, you get most of the music on the recording. You don't get most of the effect of of, uh, of magic uh, in in some sort of in some sort of medium. It's what you know. We do a, a television show on the CW network called Penn and Teller Fool Us, and it's the premise of the show. The premise of the show apparently is it's a sort of magic competition. But that's just apparent. And the idea of the show is uh, performers come on uh, do their, their finest material, and we watch them, and it, the, the game has one simple rule. The game is, uh, one. there's one simple challenge. Did the trick fool pen and teller? And the purpose of that is not because we care about any of that stuff. The purpose of that is to put the home viewer in a position where they feel like they're watching with the same kind of double vision that they would be watching if they were watching it in a theater, watching it both for the effect and for how could that possibly be done, and that sort of breaks that problem that television has with magic, because if you just put magic on TV, uh, it's in competition with every special effect you've ever seen on TV. It's you know it's not it's not a very it's not a very effective way to convey magic. Now David Blaine. Made a, made a big change in that, and that, that was a that was kind of a revolutionary thing where David Blaine started to cover it as sort of documentary footage, and that gave it a different feel from what we had had for years and years with basically proscenium shows with the TV screen substituting for for the proscenium. Uh, but magic has a very great vitality live, and I don't you know although the pandemic was certainly challenging a bit for for live performers. Um, I don't think magic is apt to go away. It's been around for thousands of years because that shock, that sort of combination of pleasure and pain of watching something that amazes you, and it is—it's both. It's it's both uncomfortable, and you feel a little—you feel you feel hurt by it, and you feel pleasure at the same time. Wow!
2: So a touch of sadism. Um, but uh, I, I feel like magic has been invigorated by shows like yours and America's Got Talent, where you can actually do magic on television and not feel cheated by cuts and, and special effects and all of that sort of thing. But the, these shows have such huge audiences that it's reinvigorated the interest in the magical arts. Yeah, I, I, I,
1: it's, it's interesting that America's Got Talent has such a penchant for magic. And I think I think it's because of this. I think with with magic is an off-on switch. You know, singing might not be an off-on switch. You know, somebody's somebody sings and sells the sells the the song pretty well. Uh you go that's pretty good. Somebody sells it spectacularly, you say that's very good. But with magic there's this off-on switch. It looks like a miracle or it's terrible. I mean, <laughs> it's a miracle or it's not a magician. You know, and and so it makes it very easy for that kind of uh, performance to go on those shows because those (laughs) judges, (laughs) as we might call them, I guess, those those judges uh, are able to tell when they are completely baffled. And that's good because they don't seem to know anything else.
2: (laughs) Well, I think your first performance group was the Othar Shek Memorial Society for the Preservation of Unusual and Disgusting Music. Tell me about that.
1: I will, I will tell you about that. That was not my group, but it was a group in which I, I did participate. Um, my best friend at college in the music department um, was Weir Chrisen W-I-E-R-C-H-R-I-S-E-N-E-R, a brilliantly funny, wonderful, sensitive musician. Um, a person who looked like a cleric, almost, very sort of tall, thin, very serious guy with, with spectacles, perfect deadpan comedian, but also who knew music very, very well. And he was doing, in the days when Peter Schickley was doing sort of climbing things with classical music, mm-hmm. Weir was doing these very strange, surprising arrangements of things that were so musically effective at the same time, they were also quite funny. Uh, imagine taking a, a piece like Beethoven's Minuet in G, bum 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 bum, you know um, mm-hmm. but but providing the bass with tuned trash cans. So <laughs> it, 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 while that light little tune is going over the top, you're hearing the trash cans go bum 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 bum. We gave we gave concerts of the uh, 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 Off Bar Shek. Memorial Society for the Preservation of Unusual and Disgusting Music. Um, named after Apmarshek, a Swiss composer. Now, I, I take a moment and think over all the Swiss composers you know.
2: Yep. I don't know any
1: other than Apmarshek. <laughs> Umarshek was a very interesting, eccentric guy whose most famous work in tune with your podcast was called Buried Alive. <laughs> It was a highly dissonant, romantic, late 19th century sort of sounding um, uh, 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 monologue by a tenor who is basically complaining about being buried alive for two sides of a long playing record. I don't know how long that is, but it's probably 45 minutes. Right. We're used to make bets with people. He would say, I I believe that uh, you cannot listen to this entire album. I will bet you 10 bucks you could not listen to this entire album. And he'd put it on and it would start. And the guy is going, you know, now I hear the earth, it's going over the top of my you know, and, <laughs> and this goes so on for 10 minutes and you go, well, that's not so awful. I could listen to the whole thing if I wanted to. And they, you know, uh, But you never would stay all the way through and He'd always win the bet. <laughs> he named the Society after Otmar Shek, who actually has some quite good music that has come out recently that I, I'm happy with, I'm excited about. Um, he invited uh, me and another friend of his named Penn Gillette to perform at one of his concerts. And the concerts, um, the, the 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 one that I was at uh. uh the one that I started at was one in which he asked me to recite a poem about the physical conception of Ottmar Shek. Um, um, began, mighty oaks, so wise men say, from minute acorns all must grow. Not trees alone, but your oaks of harmony as well must spring from microscopic German gender. So Ottmar Shek from sperm and egg to oak, from acorn to composer sprang. It was in that in that vein. On the same show, he was doing a performance of contemporary saber dance, and uh, we had met this uh, this tall, gangly, um, uh, circus trained uh, local guy in the in, in the Massachusetts area where we where we were, uh, who offered to come and juggle plungers uh, as as a, on a unicycle and do a parody of a knife-throwing act, throwing the throwing the plungers around Weir as he stood against the board and sticking them into the board. And under those circumstances, Penn and I met.
2: <laughs> an auspicious pairing.
1: It, it was, but it was an auspicious trio for, for about six years because- um, Wow. I, I had gone through all of the usual phases that magicians go through, right? You're a kid, you do kid shows. You do backyard carnivals. You, you decide you're gonna branch out into puppetry. So you gather a few of your friends and you put together puppet shows. And if your father is like my father, he builds you a lovely puppet stage. And you do your backyard carnivals and then sometimes you do them out on the, on the pavement in front of your house during the summer so that all the kids in the neighborhood can come and see them. Uh, then you start to get gigs doing um, doing shows for, 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 for other kids, like the Cub Scouts call and they say, how'd you like to do a show for five bucks? And you go, sure not realizing that Cub Scouts are the hardest audience on the face of the planet. My, my, my recollection of doing a Cub Scout show was that they enjoyed it so much that when I distributed the, the, the candy that I produced for them, they pelted me with it because they hated my, my work so much. Uh, then you, you, you get into high school and at that point, something clicks in your head, you say, I want friends, I don't want an audience, I want friends. And the way to build a friendship is not to begin by lying to them, which is essentially what magic is. Right. So I, I sort of, magic magic took a something of a backseat so that I could be part of the drama club at high school. But, but I was the, the fate was there because my, my drama coach was also a magician. His name is David huh. G. And a uh, a brilliant man, a brilliant director for, for young actors, um, taught me anything I know about depth act depth acting, um, very straightforwardly. I mean, he was a real Stanislavski method of physical actions type of guy, and we did really good uh, shows that I was very proud of. I mean, in high school, normally you do, you know for an assembly program in high school, you normally do not do *Oedipus Rex*. Uh, with full eye stabbing blood effects uh, nice. in, in clothes. So, but in the course of that, he and I began to talk a lot about the, um, about what makes magic unusual. What makes, what what's missing in magic most of the time. Because most of the time, magic is just sort of the exhibition of a trick without any content or, and without any of the stuff that a dramatist would put in. A, a, a dramatist, a dramatist doesn't have people demonstrating actions. A dramatist has people living scenes. Mm-hmm. And a part of what makes good magic is the feeling that you're actually living something and that it's unfolding for you. It's not a demonstration. It's a human it's a human event where you go into it, maybe not knowing exactly how it's going to come out. Um, here I had endless discussions, uh, endless discussions, wrote things together. Um, and we're lifelong friends until his death about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so now the position that I'm in is I've now, I've now I've gone through high school, I now go to college. In college, I try to sort of pair off the magic and, and the theater. Um, I persuaded a member of the drama department to uh, work with me on a, on, on a uh, project which was called The Figure of the Magician in Dramatic Literature. Oh. Now, what that was, was me working on my magic act within directing me. <laughs> and and my, my exam at the end was a show, which I botched unbelievably badly. Unbelievably. <laughs> oh, no. Because in those days, I, I really thought it was all about the ideas, and I didn't think about the fact that you've got to go through this enormous uh, – uh, amount of hidden work before it comes out on stage. So you know I would say, okay, I'm going to turn a rag doll into a live rabbit. Well, then you kind of learn that live rabbits don't like the action the, act- the, the the actions that they have to go through. They don't like hiding in little 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 places. And if, if they' they're interesting looking rabbits, they might be very excitable. And There's so many so many things. When you're trying to do something that looks like a miracle, there are so many pieces of reality in your way. So the show was horrible. I think he passed me for it anyway. But I got to do some more acting there, which was, which was nice. Now, I'm at the end of a college career in which, what have I selected as my major? I have selected classics, Latin and Greek. Right. We are now in the era of the Vietnam War. Oh, my God. And now the draft lottery comes up. And very excitedly, I watched the draft lottery and they get to, you know, 300, 325. 325, I think, oh, lucky me, lucky me, lucky me. And they get to the end and they haven't gotten to my birthday because my birthday was actually number three. And I- Oh,
2: geez, I was number 305.
1: (laughs) Uh, So I was was destined to go to Vietnam and die. Uh, And uh, at which point I looked at my options and they included getting a deferment for school teaching so suddenly i decided i'm going to become a latin teacher really quick wow and i found the job as a latin teacher in new jersey and um had a good time there i mean i, I wrote i'm always I, I tend to go just the way i want to go you know I'll, i came in and i saw a latin textbook that i didn't like so i wrote a latin textbook to oh me. my god and i illustrated it with my stupid drawings and um uh, it was, it was, I was ter- a terrible teacher, but but the kids, I think, always know your underlying intentions. I think they always can see through that. So even though I couldn't discipline a class to save my wretched life, the kids knew that I was enthusiastic about what I was doing, and that enthusiasm allowed me to survive in school teaching for six years. Wow. But at the end of six years, one day I got a phone call from Penn and Weir, and uh they had been talking about maybe going into show business for money as as a professional thing oh my thought, god
2: imagine that concept yeah
1: yeah yeah and they, they 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 thought they might be able to use a third person uh so that the show would contain juggling and circus skills and, and carnival skills and it would contain uh classical music and unusual arrangements and it would take contain some magic and uh Penn said, I remember Penn saying, uh, uh, he said he went to Clown College with a guy who's now running the Minnesota Renaissance Festival and thought he could get me a job there for the, over the summer. A summer job, doing magic, great, you know, wonderful. He said, it goes through October. This is the will part in October. He said, yeah, that's what we had in mind. <laughs> so uh, being prudent, I took a year's leave of absence, which became permanent after about a week Uh, 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 One one week of not having to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and start my cart in the freezing cold and going to mark test papers was enough to persuade me that any reduction of income was totally worth it.
2: Right. (laughs) Available now from our podcast partners at Dread, the Queen of Spades. According to legend, an ominous entity known as the Queen of Spades can be summoned by performing an ancient ritual. Four teenagers summon the Queen of Spades, but they could never have imagined the horrors that await them. The Queen of Spades is available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray July 3, 2021, ready to proclaim its independence. Coming soon to Dread, The Maid. Joy is the new maid of a royal house whose previous maid disappeared under mysterious circumstances and is now haunting and terrorizing the family. Joy works to uncover the reason behind the former maid's disappearance. The maid will be available on demand everywhere, July twentieth, twenty twenty one, and on Blu-ray, August seventeenth, twenty twenty one. And so that was the roots of Penn and Teller. What Penn and Teller, for me, really kind of exploded as the bad boys of magic when you were doing your shows in Hollywood, um, and kind of explaining how magic tricks were done, but not yours, and pissing off magicians and getting a lot of press in that regard. Um, But it was amazing because you were a completely new breed of magicians who were not tuxedoed and not presenting in in a very old school way. And it was kind of an explosion of new school magic.
1: I, 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 I believe it was. I mean I, I believe that there was a that we hadn't seen at that point stage magicians who treated the audience as intelligent equals. That was kind of our goal. Our goal was to say not how are we superior to the how glamorous can we be how how uh uh Full of smoke and and fire and all that sort of thing can we be to show our superiority to you but uh how we know that you know a lot about magic you do you do know a lot about magic you you, you had a magic set you had a magic uh book when you were a kid you know I had
2: sneaky it. pete's magic kit when i was a kid
1: of course and this is a universal and i think we may have been the first magicians to really recognize that magic is a Serious part of the culture that everyone's acquainted with, and so uh, just that piece of attitude was was I think maybe the most important single thing. We you know we dressed we dressed um, you know uh, do you know the story behind why magicians dress in tuxedos? No. It, it, it's in in the nineteenth century in Paris there were uh, two magicians, Henri Robin and Robert Houdin. Uh, two magicians who began to do something revolutionary. Instead of wearing long wizard robes with pointy hats, they dressed exactly the way the audience members were dressed when they came to the theater. That Uh is to say, they wore evening dress. So when you came in, you were looking into basically the living room of someone much like yourself, maybe a little on the wealthier side, but the, the living room somewhat much like yourself and I see, I see. that way you could identify you could get into the scene instead of saying oh this is the foreign weird thing that i you know i'm staying distanced from now these the especially robert redan was tremendously influential and for some reason magicians decided that the, that tuxedo was the costume of a magician it, it, essentially they turned the tuxedo into a pointy hat and a robe and continued <laughs> to wear it for a really really long time um, so one of our things that we did from the very beginning was to say we're going to dress uh, like like well-dressed businessmen. We're going to dress like like you would dress to go to a a, a reception. Uh, so we would be maybe a little more elegant than most people in in the theater, but not a costume. You know, these are these are we're wearing clothes. And the bad boys of magic then came about really almost without our, our understanding of it. We, we got a clever idea, we realized that certain kinds of movements catch the eye and move the eye very effectively. And they can do that sometimes even when you're staring right at what you shouldn't be staring at. That is something can be visible to your mind and invisible to your eye at the same time. And we realized that that worked very well in the cups and balls, which is a classic of magic with three cups and three little balls. And we experimented with this and found that we could actually do a routine with clear cups uh, that, uh, that allowed you to see all the loads happening underneath the cups at the same time that you were seeing the balls being moved outside. And the, it was like a two-part counterpoint. It was very hard to keep track of what was going on. It was quite amazing. But, of course, you know, as it's, it's I explained that to you, this is not funny. Right, this is not a funny idea. This is just an intellectual notion. And Penn said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we say that we are giving away the, you know, the, the classic of magic, the cups and balls. We are violating all the magician's uh, code. Won't that be a funny, funny pattern line? And I thought that was great. Yes, of course. So now we get to do the clever intellectual idea and it's covered with this really whimsical idea that, that this was going
2: to upset magicians.
1: Amazingly, magicians bought into it.
2: Yes, it did upset magicians.
1: Well, magicians were being told that they should be upset over this. And <laughs> some, some came, I mean, the, the sophisticated ones always understood, right? right. So people like uh-huh. Di Vernon came to the show, sat in the front row, laughed his ass off. But the amateurs and the, you know, the hobbyists went, yes, it's a, it's a rule of magic. You can't give away the secret. And that little bit of upset gave us the idea to think of ourselves as to use as a as a little publicity hook. Well, you know, we're we're, we're giving away magic secrets. So we decorated the walls of our theater with diagrams of you know old versions of how to saw a woman in half, and <laughs> and that became a theme for a while. Right. And it was it was it was useful in its day.
2: It certainly launched the fame of the duo uh in ways i had I didn't hear of you before that time, and then I started going to those shows um and but the whole idea of your two totally mismatched characters in real life and on stage is something that works so beautifully um and uh, did your silence come from the Claire Bell, the clown
1: uh, i i i was not aware of it at the time i mean if if it did i I was never conscious of it until i went back and read more about about the howdy duty show at the time that i stopped talking on stage i was just furiously irritated with magic pattern the stuff that magicians say i always found it insulting in some way You know, it was always stuff like, I can read your mind. Well, I know you can't read my mind, right? Don't start with that shit with me. (laughs) You can't read my mind, so don't imply it. Or or it would be redundant stuff like, uh, here I am holding a red ball and I'm putting it into my hand. Well, I can see that with my eyes. (laughs) Or on these very grounds, uh, 60 years ago, the great Houdini died. I know that's not true. You know i found pattern insulting so as an experiment i guess i must have been probably uh 17 or 18. Um, i tried to, I, I came up with the, the notion of uh, n- not not using pattern and not using music which is a very severe thing to do and i tend to be I, tend, I love stripping things down i love stripping things to their absolute essence and and what i thought was If I can do actions that draw a story of some kind into into perspective that the audience can get on board with uh, and and have them follow those actions, I believe that I can lead them to fool themselves without telling them how to fool themselves. Uh, So I I, I had done magic for a good, probably, eight or 10 years silent before I had ever really met Penn and worked with Penn. Mm, and he had been, of course, he, he you know, one of the things I discovered as a, as, a, as a silent guy was it's funny that if you have that audience of Cub Scouts and you're talking, they'll scream, they'll throw things at you. If you're not talking, they think you're creepy. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they, stillness and quiet are very disturbing to people. Did you read that great? There's a great recent article with uh, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins in The New Yorker about- uh, oh, and, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lands. Yeah. And in it, um, Anthony Hopkins talks about how, it, how stillness is scary. And then when you yeah. look back at that movie, you see there's so many moments when he's just still. And silence has that same effect. Silence is sort of embarrassing to people. Yeah. And I had worked. I had started to work fairly rough audiences successfully by being silent. Uh, in 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 college, I could you know if I tried to go in and talk down the frat boys at a party, no luck. If I went in and ate razor blades and didn't say anything, they got sort of worried and sort of.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's really fascinating because Penn's character is so aggressive, and yeah. yours is amiable and silent and very very much out of a Buster Keaton movie. Uh, the, the great silent film comedians seem seem to have resonance with your character on stage character as teller. There's I
1: mean, they, they do uh, in in the sense that they're they're silent. They're, they're silent comedians. Um, I, I don't. I, I will tell you, I, I've been told that I seem amiable. I am not usually thinking amiable thoughts. But that's, that's my weakness, not to be able to, to convey fully how dark the thoughts are.
2: But it's a cover to the darkness, which works so well, because you do have this smile on your face and you seem like the nicest guy. But you can tell there's a deviousness underneath that going on that that really works well. Um, I want to move away just a little bit from Penn and Teller and just Ann Teller. I mean, you did you have been a fan of horror movies for a long time. And you actually directed some shorts, um, some post-apocalyptic films, and and I want to I want to hear about your take on that and your intention on that because they're available on on YouTube, I believe, right?
1: They are. They are. Yeah. Um, one of the guys that I work with on my show, uh, Zeke Zabrowski, uh, yeah. is a you know massive, massive, massive zombie fan, and. He works with a, a wonderful special effects guy uh, named Frank Ippolito, who has a big special effects company uh, now in, in, in Hollywood. And uh, Zeke came to me and said George Romero is running a competition uh, for shorts for three minute shorts uh, that are that are zombie themed. Do you want to do one? and, he's, and you know and we had like forty eight hours to complete it. And I was just struck by the I was struck by the, the challenge. Trying to do a zombie short in you know in 48 hours, and so we more or less improvised a series of scenes around my house, and um, and uh, put them into a narration. That you know we put them together, then we created a narration that seemed to go with them, uh, and then we had the good fortune to know there's a wonderful um, um, Oregon group called uh, Three Legged Torso that I was kind of a fan of. And many of their songs are very short. And we found a way to, to edit our movie to their beautiful sort of grim, but cheerful. There's, there's something that's come simultaneously funny and, and, and sad about them uh, and came up with the, the first one of those, those films. And when we did those little three-minute film, that, that little three-minute film, it got onto George Romero's disk. He liked it, you know, that was, that was the, so that was a little bit of reward for us. And then we just sort of it became a, a sort of a hobby where now and then we would take friends of ours out into the desert and you know cover them with zombie makeup and make up stuff uh and then and then bring it back together and edit it into something that became kind of a kind of a story usually we had a good we, we knew where the story was going but we didn't know many of the specifics because when you're out in the desert you gotta you gotta think on your feet
2: right right um so directing you've also directed theater you've directed shakespeare on stage in a very unconventional way um is directing something you want to delve more deeply into
1: i i love the i love doing it uh and it's it's not something i want to change over to but mm-hmm. it is something i do enjoy doing and i i do there are aspects of it that i do pretty well and pretty naturally um i i i often know I often know what helps a story to be conveyed. I mean, I think that's, that's something that you see in the pen-and-teller stuff uh, and more often than not. The root idea, the sort of the exciting theme and premise uh, will, be, will be something was, that was essentially driven by pen. And the shape of it, more often than not, will be, will be driven by me. I like shaping things. Mm. One, of my, one of my few actual talents is that uh, if you bring out a bowl of leftovers, I always know exactly which little plastic leftover container to put them in to fill the leftover container perfectly. And that's, <laughs> that, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is my essential true talent that I've adapted to several other forms like theater directing.
2: Well, there's another uh, another theatrical experience that has, has gone wanting for a while that you also did, and I think Zeke was involved in this too, was Play Dead, the spook show, the live spook show. Tell me a little bit about that experience and what inspired that. Well, that was entirely inspired
1: by uh, the, well, it, t- t- two, two things came together. Um, I have, I'm sort of a hobbyist in the history of, 19th century and early 20th century spiritualism and the frauds that are that are attached to that um, I've, I've read about that stuff for years uh, in, in, our, in our early days Penn and I did a couple of home seances uh, where we would go to people's homes and do an hour's worth of very creepy stuff in their in their homes but that was really it was horrible for us because when the tricks were good, we were in danger of people saying, well, I know some of those things were tricks, but you really can read my mind. And then we go, no, no, <laughs> all the they were just good. No, no, no. If they were tricks, I could have figured them out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so you're having to, to argue what you would normally Try to propose, have them believe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. So there's that that branch came in, and then the other, more important branch is meeting Todd Robbins. Uh, you know, Todd, Todd Robbins is a great, great performer, and Todd Robbins uh, is was a, a serious historian of the Spook Show. Uh, I, 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 some of your listeners may not know that in, in like in the 1920s right about the time that we were moving from live, live performance to movies, uh, the group of magicians found a, a crazy way to do a show for free and make a lot of money. Uh, they, they would take a movie theater and after the regular run of the films were done, at midnight they'd take over the theater and they'd make it this sort of date night thing where kids could bring in their dates and they could, they could sit there and periodically all the lights would go off and all hell would break loose with luminous things floating around the room so they could make out, essentially. It was really just an excuse to grope your, your sex partner. <laughs> However, some of those shows, many of those shows were terrible. Some of them were pretty good. And Todd took a look at them and said, this is a, this is a form uh, that, that could be done well. This is a form that could that could have some content to it. And he and I got talking on that. And he, he had done uh, a couple of runs in in Greenwich Village of a show called Dark Deceptions, I think. Uh, and another one, they had a couple of titles for different ones. And uh, he, uh, he actually, I, I helped him book one of his performances at a theater where I was doing Macbeth in New Jersey. And we just got to talking more and more and say, what if we really focused in on making this a very uh, strong uh, uh, line of story to go through it? Uh, what if we made this? What if we made some really better tricks that have ever been in one of those shows before? Um, what if we had a really strong moral position underneath it too, uh, and combined all of that with people in the dark getting covered with you know wet. <laughs> spaghetti type of stuff landing on. You can't use spaghetti because it goes rancid, but being covered with unpleasant things while things are glowing in front of their faces and scaring the liver out of them. And we spent quite a long while writing it and found a producer, Todd found a wonderful producer in New York, the guy who, who produced um, Stump, uh who just got on board. And it's just a really sweet guy named Alan Schuster who with his partner, uh, Cheryl Weisenfeld, got on board and said, this could be a show. This really could be a show. And they 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 husbanded it. They developed it with us. We did we did uh, three workshops in Vegas of the show. One you know, 12 minutes long, one a half hour long. And then finally the, the full 70 minute one in Vegas. Uh, and they found a theater in Greenwich Village and um, and we launched it there. And it ran in New York for a year and then a subsequent version of it right in, in the in Hollywood at the at the Geffen Theater. Uh, It's one of the things I'm most proud of. I I co-wrote it with Todd and directed it. And Todd, who is a spectacular performer. I mean, Todd is the guy that you want to hear tell you a a story about a murderer. You just just want to invite Todd over and say, Todd, sit down and tell me about murderers.
2: It's a great show. It's a great show. Um, Another thing that seems to be important to you and to Penn is you're fairly active uh, politically and socially, uh, with the Cato Institute, um, James Randi was such an influence to you as well. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, yes. I, I, as as a magician, you are occupied. A, a large portion of your of your thought is occupied with figuring out what's true and what's false, and that that actually can become a, a moral issue as it was with people like Houdini. In in Houdini's age, where spiritualist fraud was rampant, um, he became a crusader for people to realize that they were being duped, and the the most sacred feelings in their hearts were being turned into cash by crooks. And it's it's hard to be in magic and not have that feeling that when somebody is lying for their own profit and, and and being dishonest in that way, that it's not, it, it shouldn't be tolerated. So yes, we, uh, the James Randi Educational Foundation, and James Randi were huge, huge influences, and we supported them, uh, supported and continued to support them. Um, and you know that 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 skeptical point of view extended to many other things. Uh, we did a series on 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 uh, Showtime. For,
2: bullshit. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Called bullshit and a bullshit was basically it was looking at the things that you take for granted as being true and asking whether they are true or not um so for example one of my favorite ones just because it's so sort of obvious is bottled water mm-hmm. you know, we, there's a whole episode about bottled water where we, we 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 did some lovely experiments to see how real bottled water it, it, how, how real the quality of bottled water is to people. One of the things we did was we, we uh, set up a fancy restaurant in Los Angeles and we and, uh, paid an actor to deliver a, a, a truck, a little, a little hand truck of different kinds of exotic bottled waters. You know, the ones from the French Alps and ones from the, from the glaciers of Japan or whatever they were. They were crazy, they were crazy Just and deliver them and have customers taste the, t- the difference between the, the different things they, the different flavors of water and they would say oh yes i can taste the glacier in this and uh and, oh yes it has the, the freshness of the air of the of spain and of course all of the bottles have been filled from the from the the, 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 ho- the garden hose behind the restaurant <laughs> <laughs> you know? And these were people who also ahead of time, I think were asked, do you drink your tap water at home? And they'd say, oh no, I can't stand Los Angeles tap water. And then we'd serve it to them in fancy bottles and suddenly it would taste entirely different. That's
2: <laughs> great. Well, I know one of your passions was, was your hero, Harry Houdini. And you have one of the largest collections, if not the largest collection of Houdini memorabilia. And that's really important to you.
1: I have, I have a, actually I'm not, I'm not a big collector but I have a few very choice items um, yeah. that, that mean a lot to me. Um, I have, I have the, the, Houdini was good friends with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Houdini was right. not well educated and had great admiration for Doyle because Doyle was this tremendously educated, literate, literate, literate Englishman. Uh, and they shared an interest in spiritualism. Uh, because Houdini's mother had died and he was very upset and could really never shook that and Doyle's son had died during the First World War. They became very close friends and Houdini was of course aware of the kinds of tricks that that deliberately fraudulent mediums were using but he never thought of Doyle as being such a person. Well Houdini and Doyle met uh, for a visit in Atlantic City, uh, this is shortly after Houdini's mother had died, and Lady Doyle said, "You know, I'm a trance medium. I can go into I can go to, into a trance and perhaps get some automatic writing from your dead mother." And Houdini said, "Okay, let's try it. I know you're honest." And she went into a trance, and she wrote the typical sort of letter. You know that you get from any spirit medium. You know, I am over here. It is all very beautiful and very happy. I look down on you, and I'm very proud of you, etc. You know, the, the sort of usual stuff that you would make up. No, now mind you, I don't believe that she thought she was making it up. I believe she thought this was genuinely being dictated by Houdini's mother. And at the end of it, Houdini took the letter, which is in the Library of Congress, by the way, the thing that she that she wrote. I've seen it there. I've gone there, mm. and. Uh, And he thought about what what was was in it. And later, because this, you know, Houdini was under the national spotlight all the time, and so was Doyle. So later reporters asked Houdini what had happened there. And Houdini said, I believe that Lady Doyle is sincere, but I do not think this is actually a letter from my mother. I have two reasons for that. Uh, One, it's written in English. That's a language that my mother didn't speak at, at any time during her life. And two, uh, the letter begins with a cross at the top of it. And my mother was the wife of a rabbi. I don't think she did. Um, and he, he said, you know, he, he said he, he did not, you know, she, he thought she was sincere, but he thought it was not genuine. Doyle went through the roof and their friendship broke up. And I have the letter that Houdini wrote to Doyle after that episode uh, saying essentially, I, I, I want to be completely honest with you. Uh, I believe you are honest and frank and a good friend, but I don't believe that was for real. And I believe that really marks the moment when Houdini went from being a possible believer in that supernatural stuff to being a uh, really firm skeptic uh, who who uh, followed that that position for the rest of his life. And they split off, and Doyle would do lectures that in which he would in which he would consider Houdini be knighted and Houdini would think of Doyle as being someone who was a mis, misinformed, misled. Um, so that's that's the. I have a couple of choice things like that. I have the first the first letter that Houdini wrote to his brother after the death of his mother, in which he describes the sensation of in which he describes the sensation of trying to do a show. You know, he says he says something like a uh, dash. It's hard. Sometimes I'm all right, but when a quiet moment arrives, I'm as bad as ever. Oh, yes. so this, is, uh, this is my new letterhead, and it is not with, with gladness that I ordered saying. He says that because it's surrounded with a black border to indicate his mourning for his mother. And the sentence that just always catches me is, dash, it's tough. I can't seem to get over it. Sometimes I feel all right. When a calm moment arrives, I was bad very Oops, so that hits me very hard. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't collect a lot of random Houdini stuff. I have, I have, uh, a, you know, a sort of gold embossed invitation to the last Houdini séance that Bess held uh, after Houdini had died. She promised she'd try to get in touch with him for ten years. And what do you know? He didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's powerful stuff. Well, Teller, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us here on The Slab. And I, I hope we can do more because we barely touched on things I'd love to talk to you about. And uh, it's just an honor to be able to peek inside your mind and to have been able to see so many shows over the evolution of your career and can't wait to see more. Well, thank you very much,
1: ben. I it's a, it's, it's a pleasure and an honor to be asked to talk for, Thank you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.